0: everyone my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that you can subscribe to the YouTube channel every Wednesday for the visual version or you can head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. Now for today's case we're gonna be talking about about the case of Taylor Van Dyst. Now there is a lot to get through so we're just gonna hop right into it. On October 31st of 2011 in Armstrong, British Columbia, which was a rural and sleepy town, it's about five hours away from Vancouver up in the mountains with a population of 5,000. And back in 2011, 18-year-old Taylor Van Dyst lived here. Taylor was born in 1993 and raised in British Columbia, Canada with her mom. Marie and her twin sister, Christy. And on this specific day of October 31st, it was Taylor's favorite day because it was Halloween. Taylor absolutely loved Halloween. She loved anything that had to do with being scared or being spooked. She absolutely loved horror movies and dressing up into costumes and going to haunted houses and ghost hunting. She, like most of us, was obsessed with that whole entire world and so Halloween was by far her favorite holiday and she loved going all out and going out with her friends. And honestly, this is something that Taylor needed because at the time, Taylor had just graduated high school and it was said by her family and friends that she was going through a really rough time. She was going through that transitional phase of leaving high school and going out to the real world, you know. I feel like our whole lives up until high school were kind of told what the next steps are to do. We are just told, you know, you go from elementary school to middle school and then middle school to high school and you just kind of follow the rules as you go along. But after high school, it's very 50-50. You are confronted with a lot more options on what you personally wanna do. Do you wanna go to college? Do you wanna go to trade school? Do you not wanna go to school at all and start your own business? There's just so many different routes to take and for taking Taylor, she was extremely undecided. She would often confide in friends and family how she felt very confused and she didn't know what to do or where to go and so she was actually looking forward to Halloween because she'd get to go out with her friends and just release some stress. Her plan was to go to her friend's house where all of her other friends were meeting up and and then once all the girls showed up, from there they would start trick-or-treating. Taylor had dressed up as a zombie this night and she planned on going out with her friends, trick-or-treating, and then at the end of the night she would go over to her boyfriend Colton's house. And so at 5 45 that's when she started to head off into the night. She left her home to go to her friend's house and along the way she was texting her friends and her boyfriend. She was walking a route to her friend's house. It's a dark rural path but it also meets at train tracks and usually people walk alongside those train tracks sort of as a shortcut to get from one side of town to the other. But as it started to get later, it also started to get a lot darker outside. And at 6 p.m. is when Taylor would send a text to Colton saying, quote, being creeped. Immediately when Colton found this text, he was extremely worried, so he started texting back but eventually got no response from Taylor. And this was specifically scary coming from Taylor because as I said, on the way to her friend's house, she was texting her boyfriend, she was texting her friends, she was a really big texter and she was always on her phone, so the fact that she was just on her phone clearly because she had texted her boyfriend and now all of a sudden she's not responding, Colton Started to get extremely worried. Two hours go by and Colton is still getting no response, so he contacts Taylor's friends to ask if she had gotten to the house yet, but all her friends said that Taylor hadn't shown up. So at this point, the friends start texting Taylor, and again, Taylor did not respond. And then that is when her friends decided to contact Taylor's mother to ask her if Taylor had even left the house yet, and Taylor's mom had told her friends that she had left around 5 45. That's when the mother started texting and calling Taylor, but once again with no response. Taylor's boyfriend, her friends, and her mom were extremely worried, and then later on that night, a group of teenagers were walking down the same railroad tracks that Taylor was walking down a couple hours prior, and in the distance, the kids start hearing buzzing sounds. They follow the buzzing sound and what they see on the train tracks is a phone. And so they pick up the phone and they start looking through it and they find so many concerning text messages from it seems to be family and friends and dozens and dozens of missed calls. So this group of teenagers takes the phone and they start texting back some of the numbers. They say, you know, hey, we just found this phone randomly by these train tracks. I'm not sure who this phone belongs to, but we just want to let you know that whoever you're contacting, they might have just lost their phone. So when everybody receives these text messages, that's when Colton, Taylor's friends, and Taylor's mom all rushed to the train tracks in search for Taylor. They knew that Taylor couldn't have just easily dropped her phone because, again, Taylor was supposed to be at her friend's house, and if she did accidentally drop her phone, she would have made it to her friend's house by then. So there was a feeling that something a lot more was going on. Friends, mom, and Colton got to the tracks to look for Taylor and were calling out her name and they also call the police, While they wait for the police, they decide to look around the train tracks for her, especially in a nearby wooded area, and as they're searching, that is when they see what seems to be a lump in the distance. They get closer to this lump and see that it was a young woman's body covered in blood. Taylor's mom was the first person to see this lump, and when she turned over the body, it was Taylor. Taylor at the time was mumbling something random, so she was still alive, but she was barely breathing. So the family immediately called an ambulance while the mother, who was actually a first responder, saw her daughter going in and out of consciousness and told her to just hold on and fight it because she's gonna make it through. Taylor was taken to the hospital and she was found with severe head trauma, skull fractures, ligature marks around her neck, defensive wounds, and her. Her nails had blood underneath them. So it definitely seems like this was an attack and Taylor was trying to fight off whoever was attacking her. Although Taylor was still breathing and still somewhat conscious, she had suffered a lot of damage to her skull and brain and there was just too much damage to the point where she had slipped into a coma. And early the next morning on November 1st, Taylor unfortunately passed away. Once the police did an autopsy, on Taylor's body, they knew that this just wasn't an accident. This was definitely a homicide. There's no way that Taylor could have done this to herself, and so the police start interviewing a couple neighbors nearby, and all of the neighbors actually said that they heard screams coming from the direction of the train tracks, but since, as I said, it was Halloween night, everybody was screaming. Everybody was trying to spook their friends. Everybody was laughing and yelling, so it wasn't really odd for them to hear screaming because it was Halloween. But there was one woman in particular that said that she was outside lighting her pumpkins and all of a sudden she heard screams coming from specifically the direction of the railroads. But again, she just thought nothing of it. She just thought, you know, maybe it's a group of teenagers and they decided to scare their friends. So this story was made public. Since the attacker and murderer was still out on the loose, police spread the word and urged everyone not to walk alone at night. The police investigate and a week goes by and that is when the police get their first somewhat of a lead. The police get a letter in the mail from a person who claims to be the killer. Although the contents had never been revealed and neither the author was ever revealed, it was said that in the letter they were talking about how they killed Taylor and they planned to kill more women walking alone in the area. but. Later, after analysis, it was seeming to just be a hoax letter because there was details in the letter that did not line up with the crime scene, things that the killer would definitely know, such as the place where Taylor was found, her body placement, the time, etc. Towards the end of November, it had been almost a month since the murder, and police make a big breakthrough. They decide to test the blood and skin underneath Taylor's nails, and the DNA did not match Match up to a specific person but it did match up for the DNA found underneath the fingernails of another woman that was involved in another attack. A masseuse in the area back in 2005 was attacked and SA during her shift and later died. But unfortunately nothing really came of this because although the DNA was tested underneath her fingernails they couldn't find a match to the DNA in their database so it just kind of went cold. Up until now now, six years later, they're finally finding the same exact DNA proving that this is a repeating offender. But luckily, back in 2005, there was a witness to the attack. So they took that sketch and kind of aged the person up a little bit and released it to the public. The description was of a white man around 5, 10, and 20 years old, but as of now, in 2011, the man would be 27 to 28. Eight years old. This was a town with a population of five thousand. So, if the suspect did live in the area, it would be pretty easy to match. But unfortunately, the police could not get any matches to this sketch. After they released it, they did receive over a thousand calls from people saying that they think they may know who the man is. But a lot of these calls just led nowhere. But there was a couple calls that included one man's name in particular. This man lived an hour away from Armstrong in Cherryville, and Cherryville was known to be the more foresty and mountain areas, and this man was 27-year-old Matthew Forrester. Matthew Forrester was born in 1998 in Canada with his father, Stephen. Matthew not only matched the description perfectly, but he was also known for being emotional and aggressive. When the 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 police tried to get in contact with Matthew, such as calling him, he was not responding to any of their calls, so they decided to head over to his apartment in Cherryville, and when they knocked, there was no response. The police ended up breaking down the door, and when they walked in, they found his apartment was completely empty. There was no furniture, there was no clothing, there wasn't even any clues to say as to where he went. And so already this is very suspicious because their suspect for murder is just nowhere to be found and if Matthew didn't do anything wrong, why would he randomly pick up all of his stuff and move? So curious as to where he went, the police approached the landlord to ask him a couple questions. The landlord said that the day after Halloween, Matthew came to him and said that he needed to move immediately due to a job and demanded his security deposit back. The landlord said, well, you know, I don't have the money for your security deposit right now. It'll probably take a couple days for the papers to go through. And also Matthew was moving in the middle of his lease term. And so if you completely leave during the middle of your lease term, there's a lot of papers that you have to sign. There's a lot of things that you have to go through. And so because of all of these timely things, Matthew basically just said, screw it, screw the deposit and packed up as much of his stuff as he could and left that day. And where Matthew exactly was going, no one knows. The landlord said that Matthew didn't mention where he was moving to or where this new job was, so that is when the police start trying to get in contact with Matthew's family in hopes of Matthew maybe just lying low at a family member's house. The police eventually get in contact with Matthew's father, and Matthew's dad actually told police that Matthew moved out because he got a new job working in the oil fields And the The job was very demanding because they needed matthew on very short notice and the job he got paid lots of money so he was not about to turn down this opportunity and that's why he was so quick to move matthew started telling his father all of this about how he got a new job and how he's really stressed because he needs to move out and so that's when matthew's dad is like oh that's okay you know i'll come over i'll pack up all your things you just move and start your job and i'll pack up everything." And so that's exactly what he did. Stephen the next day went into Matthew's apartment and packed up all of his stuff for him. But although this story sounds semi-realistic, the police were not buying this story at all, mostly due to Stephen's background. Since 1969, Stephen had a criminal record and he had been in and out of jail since then. His criminal record varied. There was a lot of auto theft, escaping police custody, drugs, offenses, possession of a deadly weapon, and so with his background, the police had suspicion that there was a lot more, and so they searched. They called Matthew's phone company to obtain records and found that Matthew was ironically in Armstrong the night of Halloween, aka the night of the murder, which was really odd because as I said, Matthew lived an hour away in Cherryville. What would he be doing in Armstrong on Halloween, ironically the same night that a girl gets murdered. So at this point, the police know that they have their killer, but they still don't know where Matthew is. So that's when they start trying to put a little bit more pressure on Matthew's dad and trying to get him to tell the truth. So they bring Stephen into the station to figure it out where Matthew went, but Stephen does not crack and he does not plan on snitching on his son anytime soon. So after hours of interrogating, Stephen still wasn't cracking. So the police eventually just got tired of it and steven also requested a lawyer so they had to end the interview but shortly after this the police would get a call from one of matthew's friends who got word that matthew was being investigated by the police the friend told the police that his nephew was recently in a lot of trouble and needed some cash, so his nephew decided to sell his identity to Matthew for $500. Apparently, Matthew kept on telling this friend that he needed to disappear, that he needed to get a new identity, and ironically, his nephew at the time was also in need of a new identity because I guess he was running away from some people that he owed money money to and that's why he needed that $500. So this friend eventually did sell his identity to Matthew for $500 and he was able to obtain a fake driver's license with the nephew's name but Matthew's picture. The nephew gave Matthew an old bank card of his and his social security number. Now Matthew was going under the new identity of Lee Shaw Cross. So now that the police know that Matthew now goes by Lee Shaw Cross, it does help a little bit, but they still don't know where he is. He could be anywhere around Canada at this point. The police know that Stephen knows a lot more than he's letting on, and so that is when they decide to tap Stephen's phone in order to hopefully get some conversations recorded between him and Matthew, and it didn't take long because literally the day that they tapped his phone, Matthew had called his dad, and the two of them, just began talking and Matthew actually called his dad a lot. Matthew probably called his dad three to four times a day, sometimes to ask questions, sometimes just to regularly talk, but Matthew made sure to be very careful in these phone calls and to make sure that he did not reveal where he was or his fake name or anything that would be confidential for the police to know. But the police knew that now that they were able to hear Matthew constantly, There is going to be a time that Matthew was going to slip up. He was going to say something that he wasn't supposed to, but now the police just needed to hold off and wait until that day came and in March of 2012, Five months after the murder, that day finally came. The police are tapping into a phone call between Matthew and his father, Stephen, when Matthew reveals that he actually fled to Ontario shortly after the murder, and he currently works at a glass factory in Collingwood, northwest of Ontario. And since it had been five months since the murder, I'm assuming that Matthew assumed that things had calmed down, that the police weren't tracking him anymore, and so he casually Usually said over the phone to his dad something along the lines of quote yeah and now I have to drive all the way out to Collingwood for my job every day but I don't mind it anymore and when Matthew said that, his father actually snaps, and Stephen says, don't say that, why are you revealing that, they could be listening to us right now, the police could be tapped in, and then at the end of the call, Stephen becomes so flustered, and just tells Matthew just to stop calling him so much, and to never call him again, and little did Matthew know, the police actually were listening to him, and so the police immediately rushed over to the glass factory and. Ontario, asked to speak with Lee Shaw Cross and arrested him on the spot. Matthew was taken by plane from his work back to Armstrong, where he was being charged with murder, and his dad was being charged with aiding a fugitive. At first, Matthew was super uncooperative with the police. He acted like he didn't know anything, like he didn't know who Taylor was, etc. He tried to convince the police that he actually was Lee Shaw Cross. I guess Matthew didn't know how much evidence the police actually had, Apparently, when the police went through Matthew's apartment, they ended up finding an object. I'm not really sure what the object was, but they found an item with Matthew's DNA on it, and when they ran that DNA, they found that that DNA matched perfectly with the DNA that was found under the fingernails of Taylor, as well as under the fingernails of the masseuse back in 2005. So the police tell Matthew that. They say that we have your DNA matching with two attacks, they also tapped his phone so they knew exactly where he worked. He was going under a different identity, which by the way, that's literally identity theft. That's an actual crime. The police also tell him that they talked to his phone carrier and found that he was in Armstrong the night of the murder. And so a couple hours go by and that is when Matthew slowly begins to crack. And the reason why he begins to crack is when an officer asks him the question, quote, do you feel bad for killing Taylor? And once he was asked this, I guess that's when Matthew hit his breaking point and he began confessing. Matthew goes on to say that he was indeed walking around on Halloween night in Armstrong. That night, he had been drinking and smoking weed and was looking for specifically sex. He was in search of an escort or a sex worker, and as he was walking around, that's when he came across Taylor, who was walking alone near the tracks. He became extremely infatuated with Taylor and started to follow her down the tracks, and as he was following behind her, he saw her pull out her phone and start texting. It was believed that in this moment is when Taylor texted Colton, quote... Being creeped, Matthew was nervous when she pulled out her phone because he was nervous that she might call someone, so he immediately approached her and the two of them began talking for a couple of minutes. That was until, randomly, in the middle of the conversation, Matthew had pushed Taylor to the ground and told her to be quiet. Taylor was not quiet at all, she began screaming and roaring and trying to get any sort of attention from anyone. In this moment, Matthew panicked, so he jumped on top of her and tried to keep her mouth shut. He then pulled out a cord and started to strangle her, and she kicked and scratched and fought for her life as she screamed. She continued to scream, and this stressed out Matthew even more, and so that's when he took Taylor's head and slammed it into the ground six times before hitting her head with a mag flashlight that he had. When he hit her over the head with the flashlight, this caused her skull to split open, and Matthew basically just got up and ran away. In March of 2014, three years after the murder, that's when his trial began in Colonia, Canada. He was being charged with the first degree murder of Taylor and he eventually accepted a plea deal and pled guilty, but he was not just found guilty for the murder of Taylor, he was also found guilty of the murder of the masseuse back in 2005 and police found that he was also linked to another attack that happened six months prior to the the masseuse murder in 2005. Matthew confessed and said that he had broken into the home of a 19 year old girl who was sleeping alone and he attacked her. He was wearing a face mask and holding a BB gun and he threw her against the wall and said that he wanted her but I guess he got too scared because before anything happened he just ran away without essaying her although she was left extremely traumatized and with a bunch of wounds all over her body. He was being charged with all three of those women and he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. The following month in April of 2014 that's when Stephen's trial had began and he was sentenced to three years for aiding a fugitive knowing that Matthew had murdered a woman back in 2005 and also murdered another woman in 2011 but Stephen decided decided to keep his son's secret knowing that his son will reoffend in the future. But that is actually not where the story ends because in 2016, 2 years later, an appeal made by Matthew's lawyers was accepted. The lawyers argued that they wanted a retrial because the judge was found making mistakes in instructions to the jury and the judge had accepted this new trial. But before the new trial date was set, Matthew accepted a new plea deal in which he did plea guilty for the same exact charges as before but now he was just getting life in prison with no possibility of parole for 17 years which at this point it was technically 15 years because he had already served two. As of today Matthew is 39 years old and he is still in prison and may be released out on parole in 2031 at the age of 47. As As for Matthew's father, Stephen, I couldn't really find much information about Stephen online, but I'm assuming he's out and about because his sentencing was only three years and this happened back in 2014, so he should have been released out in 2017, but nothing has really been said about him since. And I think this is just absolutely scary that this man is just out and about now because he could be anywhere in Canada. If you live in Canada and you're out on a train or on a bus or even in line at a random store, he could be in the same store as you. He could be in the same train as you. And for some reason, that scares me to death. And also the possibility that Matthew will be released in 2031 when he's just 47 years old, which 47 isn't even that old. You still have a good 30, 40 years left to go out and live your life. And it's hard to say that he may or may not get parole, but in my personal opinion, I unfortunately see him getting parole. I feel like since the court had agreed with Matthew to lesser his sentence from 19. years to 17 years it does seem like he has a good legal team a good team that would fight for him and so when his parole comes around who's to say if he would actually be granted parole or not but unfortunately we won't know any of those details till that day gets here and yeah that is the end of today's case if you guys found today's case interesting make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on youtube or if you're on spotify Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because it really helps me out a lot. If you want to follow me on any of my socials, like my Instagram, that will be linked down below, as well as my P.O. box if you want to send me anything. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure to be safe out there. If you are listening to this the day that it comes out, it is Halloween, so happy Halloween, everyone. Make sure to have fun, but be as safe as possible make sure to always surround yourself with friends if you are going out tonight at all but overall i hope you guys celebrate the holiday i hope you guys have a fun day i know i will i'm dressing up as jesse pinkman from breaking bad so i'm really excited about that and yeah that's all from me once again i hope you guys found today's video interesting and as always i love you i love you i love you and i will see you guys next week bye